Welcome to the latest episode of Data Unchained. I'm your host, Molly Presley. So if you have not listened to this podcast before, Data Unchained is all about how the paradigm for data access has changed. In today's decentralized world, everything has moved towards the cloud, towards the edge, to multiple data centers. The idea of how to get data to remote workers, to distributed applications, different cloud regions, and now some of the frenzy and craze around analytics applications in the AI world It's a really big challenge. Data Unchained digs into the challenges and solutions to make data an asset as a globally accessible resource. Today's guests are two founders and CEOs coming together to talk about this complicated data landscape from a couple of different perspectives. We have the Hammerspace founder and CEO, David Flynn, joined by the Peer88 Investment Partners founder and CEO, Frank Timmons. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Great to see you. So, David, some of the folks who listen to the show, in fact, most of them probably have heard other episodes with you. But would you start us off with a quick overview of your background and how Hammerspace came about? And then we'll move over to Frank. So uh, my background, um, well, prior to Hammerspace, would be best known for the work uh, that I did in introducing solid state into enterprise data center uh, with uh, the company Fusion I.O. that... Uh, that technology later has been standardized and become uh, actually nearly a half a trillion dollar a year industry, 400, 400 billion a year in, uh, in uh, um, uh, NVMe flash. So super, super exciting there. Uh, that's my background and what led to uh, the desire to help solve the challenge of data being uh, decentralized. I think it's been kind of fun working with you now for almost two years, and we were back at a Flash Memory Summit event last week, kind of the roots of some of your earlier work, and it was kind of fun walking the halls and people saying, oh my gosh, that's David Flynn, a bit of celebrity appeal was kind of fun to see. (laughs) Even though you're not that type of person, it is kind of fun to see how some of the founders of massive industries like that are, you know, regarded in a space like that. So that was super cool. Um, Frank, can you tell us a bit about your background, um, both in technology and in the investment community, and a little bit about Pure 88 as well? Sure. Thanks for having me. So I started my career investing um, in corporate development and venture at Sun Microsystems back in 1999, 2000, kind of the real fun times, the beginning of the internet. Went to Wall Street first as a storage analyst. And then eventually went to the buy side, was a technology analyst, and became a PM on some very large products on Wall Street, very big, long-only firm. Uh, and then I started my own firm, Purity 8, uh, t- to basically try to invest a different way. The firm uh, is based in East Coast and in San Francisco. We manage roughly $600 million uh, of institutional high net worth and private client money um, across some very innovative companies. I'm just curious. Does Wall Street still have storage analysts? Is that a thing? Or has it moved into more like applications and data and things like that? So it's interesting because uh, you think about the companies when I was a storage analyst that were individual stocks. There were companies like um, Storage Tech and EMC. And some of these companies no longer exist, right? They become part of bigger companies. But mm-hmm. there are still um, folks that cover things. It's just the industry has evolved a lot. Absolutely. Um, and before we jump into the show, we were just getting things set up for today's podcast. And you mentioned how 
a lot of the messaging that Hammer Spaces around things that you even heard back to the Java days, I think would be interesting for you to share some of the problems even back in the Sun Microsystems days, the things they were looking to solve that are only now coming to fruition. Yeah, it's it's when I was thinking about our investment in Hammer Space, what intrigued me was the company is solving things that we've tried to think about for decades. And I remember sitting in Menlo Park's campus. It's actually where Facebook or Meta is now. And people were drawing on the whiteboard about wanting to have access to a service anytime, anyplace, on any device. And that was in 1999. And the idea back then was great and laudable, but networks weren't ready. There was just too much, you know, trying to figure out how to make that work. And it's just some of the issues that we worried about way back in the early days of cloud. Now we're finally be able to, you know, with wonderful innovation, be able to actually address those issues. Yeah. And David, I think you've had kind of some of the same experience with NVMe and Fusion IO as step one in this vision. But maybe you could talk about how Hammerspace is really coming to the fruition of a lot of these industry goals that we've had for the last couple of decades. Well, yeah, we saw with the introduction of Flash, um, and this was really what Fusion IO uh, pushed, was there's no reason to imprison Flash behind this storage network on a storage system, not even behind the buses and controllers, but you should put the Flash more directly right uh, inside the server, right on its, on its arteries on the PCI Express bus. Uh, but the challenge that, that creates is then you have these little islands of data inside every server. It's kind of rolling back the clock. You know, we centralized storage largely to get better utilization of the limited performance of mechanical drives. And that's why Flash sort of reversed that centralization and flipped it to decentralization because now you benefit from putting it into each server where it's got lower latency because it has you know, uh, way more performance. uh, uh, So you don't need to centralize it to share it anymore from a performance perspective. Um, But this leads to, well, how do we then solve the challenge of having data be physically distributed and yet logically one? Excellent. Yeah, that makes sense. It's hard too, isn't it? It is. The same problem repeats at multiple scales. As Frank was saying, at the macro scale between entire data centers and over wide area networks or over the internet. Uh, that's the, the outermost. And then, you know, between servers with flash uh, is the innermost. And then there's one in between as well. And that's between third party systems, uh, maybe of different types and definitely of different vendors within the same data center. So I think of these as kind of three, a three layer concentric thing with uh, between servers between systems and between whole whole sites, whole data centers, those are just the same problem repeated at three different scalings. One of our investors put it that it's a fractal problem. It uh, it has a repeating occurrence there. So, how did the two of you first meet? So, I was managing a couple billion dollar fund on Wall Street, and there was this hot new company that went public, and um, I. Flew out to Utah to meet David, and we had a really awesome conversation about the short-term nature of Wall Street, and and some of the trade-offs CEOs have to make if if you wanted to invest for a customer and, and play the long game. And and some, oftentimes there was a mismatch with the way some people invest in Wall Street and how a CEO ran a business. 
And as much as we want to make things simple on Wall Street, business doesn't always happen in 90-day increments. <laughs> and so we became, I think, fairly kindred spirits in disruptive innovation and thinking about building great franchises. So that's my remembering. And then I, when I eventually wanted to start my own company, I asked David for advice. And I'll let David pick up the story from there. <laughs> that's right. Uh, you know, Frank and I were commiserating about the short-term nature of Wall Street and and he was telling me how that leaves a whole lot of value on the table because companies are not valued for what they are uh, really potentially worth. And especially, you know, smaller companies that are very innovative um, and have uh, strong technology. And, and so he shared with me this idea of building a fund that uh, the way I see it and is kind of based on two things. Number one, set the expectations with uh, those that invest through them that it's a long-term thing. So that they're not being managed mark-to-market you know, on a quarterly basis or a daily basis even, but with some expectation of a, a longer term and having the, the capital in for longer term. And the second thing was to play it um, as, a, as a hedge against um, the potential value of a company in an acquisition or uh, private equity um, taking private because companies on Wall Street are often trading at a huge discount to what they would be worth uh, were they to be acquired by a larger company and leverage for what the technology could really do uh, or trade under what they would be worth in the private markets at all if they were taken private through through private equity. And um, I have to say I've been, uh, you know, uh, privileged to be a part of that, have some of my own capital with, with Frank and team since the inception there. And he has done just a phenomenal job. What is it now? 50 some odd companies that have 55, yeah, 55 companies that they have correctly identified as potential acquisition targets who have later gone to be acquired. And, you know, he built um, a family of, of funds that invest uh, uh, you know, long only, long short, uh, through con- convertible debt, but basically um, in this same family of companies that are um, uh, not valued well by Wall Street uh, versus what they are truly worth when you look at the underlying disruptive nature of the technology. Part of the thesis um, around innovation revolves around organizational issues. And everyone always looks at the big giants as being having all the capital and all the market reach. But if you look at the tech landscape, it's littered with franchises of days yesterday. And um, you think of uh, my company, Sun Microsystems, a small division of Oracle now. And you think about when I when I went to work for Sun, they were the largest company on the planet. And and what is it? And I think it's. There's always a tension between innovation and bureaucracy. And sometimes a smaller, more focused team um, can move faster. And so it's just trying to exploit that of a more focused team that maybe is just trying to focus on winning and serving and delighting customers versus worrying about the next corporate um, advancement or promotion. And I remember once someone telling me at Sun that, our biggest competitor wasn't IBM. It was the other division that had the same <laughs> charter, they thought, and that we had out-execute them. And so it's just a fascinating look at there are great franchises out there, but you really see, and what I've always done since I started this company was 
look for those companies that are doing something very special that clearly are in a collision path with some of the bigger companies to help them. I think it would be interesting, David, for you to talk a little bit about how you, as the CEO, um, think of running a company like this in a state where the macro economy is uncertain, you're developing really innovative um, technology. I mean, how do you structure and organize a company in today's market? Well, it all really starts and ends uh, with uh, something Frank just mentioned, which is delight the customer. Um, you know, really, it's all about being successful at uh, bringing something to market that can change the landscape for the better uh, for those businesses who adopt it. Um, and, you know, the, it has to be a focus on, on their success, the financial rewards um, you know, come with it, uh, but those, and it's necessary to be able to, you know, generate profits that you can invest back into the business, but, but that's all a secondary thing. So one of the things that I find is that especially when the economy is tough, uh, going back to first principles, which is to remember that, uh, delighting customers is, is the key and, and doing things where they think it was previously impossible. That was what was so fun with Fusion IO, is nobody had any idea just how capable Flash was to change the game because of just extreme high performance. And here with Hammerspace, you know, we're changing the game with what it takes to, to deliver a shared infrastructure and high performance, but take that and add it to the ability to orchestrate data across clouds, across data centers, across systems. And that really is a game changer for the business practices, you know, for companies. And, and during a tough economy, it presents opportunities because people are, are then more likely to look at, well, let's do something a little different than what we were. Cause if we keep with that, you know, we're going to, we're going to hurt. So how do you feel the economy is Frank? And yeah, I think, um, you know, we all have our peers and that we talk to are trying to raise money or, you know, finding capital difficult to access. From your perspective on the investment side, how do you feel like the investment landscape is looking right now? I'm actually increasingly really excited about what's going on right now. Um, we raised a venture fund the last year or so to take advantage of what we thought was going to happen. And for a long time, I was watching late stage private markets and scratching my head because it didn't make sense from a valuation point relative to the small cap publics. And when I started investing back at Sun, we preferred private deals because there were fewer shareholders to call. You called the VCs, you called the CEO. And there was something in the olden days, as my kids like to refer to, as the illiquidity discount, meaning that if you're going to lock your capital up, you would pay less for an asset. So apples to apples, the same asset would be a third cheaper. We started looking several years ago, and we saw similar properties where the private markets were 5, 10x more expensive than the publics. And so um, you're seeing that now filter back where some folks that maybe haven't seen a lot of cycles or people got caught up in kind of a, a bull market are now seeing some of the sins of that where they're right down in lack of capital. There's still tons of capital out there. If you look, there's still record number of money not deployed. Um, and we found that oftentimes the best time to invest in great innovation companies is when investors are panicking. 
And uh, Hammerspace is a, a company where we see an opportunity where they're delighting customers, they're growing, and we had an opportunity to participate, and it's super exciting. With respect to the broader markets, markets will do what they do. They're cycles. Um, there's always you know challenges in an economy, but to David's earlier point, most of our research suggests that over time, 80% of an IT budget is just keeping the lights on. It's what they're doing, right? And people want to mm-hmm. talk about the exotic, esoteric, fun stuff, strategic stuff. We all want to be strategic. But that's like 20% of the budget. A good downturn, though, focuses a, uh, a group to say, well, how can we do things better, right? How can we actually reduce cost? How can we do things more efficiently? Sometimes that gives you the cover to actually kind of rip the bandit off and say, this is not working, and you can look at all the trends behind a company like Hammerspace, whether it's remote working, whether it's explosion of unstructured data. Companies have to solve for these issues. They're not going to go away. I'm curious, are there specific things about the Hammerspace technology that drew your attention? Uh, for the company in itself, yes. I, I am not in the camp that the best technology is the only thing that requires to war- to win something. If you look through history, in our view, it's people, process, and technology. You have to understand how people are going to utilize the technology. You have to build an organization to help deliver the technology and help your customers. And so when I see a company like Hammerspace, well, you can't fault the vision. The vision's perfect, right? It's, it's kind of nirvana being able to see how do you deliver the services that people want anywhere in the world. Then you look at the tech team, right, seasoned veterans that have done it before, and they're really solving major issues. So for the non-techie people, the world users, just give me access to the data I need to do my job, right? For companies being able to work on the same data set across the globe, just make it easy. But then make it easy for the person who's actually managing the IT. If you make it easy for them, single pane of glass, you're reducing headache for them. So you're solving real issues. And, and the best testimony of that is actually customers are buying it that's not slideware. And as you know, in tech marketing, there's so much puff out there and people like to copy the same words, right? And <laughs> you go to a conference once a year and, and you'll say, well, how many companies doing XYZ flavor for the day? So you have to ignore that and say, wow, people are really using these real customers as solving real issues. And David, I think it'd be interesting for you to add to that with what made it so difficult. So this, this utopia <laughs> of any day you want anywhere sounds obvious that you would want that. What's made it so difficult? Um, well, the the truth is that a very high bar was set. Operating systems have an expectation from their file systems on what they're able to do. Uh, random read and write, uh, get good performance, the POSIX interfaces, the directory structure, and so forth. And those uh, file systems are kind of the gold standard. Uh, indeed, to get to the kind of scale, the big public cloud vendors had to build a dumbed down, a super simplified file system. We call it object storage. And then they convinced the whole industry that to move to the cloud, you need to rewrite your application to use this interface that's not even native to the OS, that you have to plug into every last application in user space and is a, is a mess. So uh, I would say the number one most challenging thing is to 
build uh, a file system that qualifies as a true file system in every sense of the word, consumable by every OS on the planet, um, but which is for the first time truly infrastructure agnostic and capable to span um, everything from servers with Flash uh, to third-party storage systems and services all the way to spanning whole different data centers uh, and uh, and around the world. Uh, so, you know, file system was always the most difficult part of the operating system. The modern operating environment goes just beyond the OS that's running on the specific machine. The operating environment is a much more complex thing that goes across the cloud and and on-prem. But it is, again, building the file system for that operating environment that is the number one most challenging thing. And then here, the second piece is that that then enables us to take the data movement function instead of that being something you do via copy from outside between uh, systems that that uh, leads to you know fracturing the the view of the data, disrupting the access to it, and creating you know, proliferating copies that are that are different points in time uh, of the evolution of of the data environment and f- forks in time. Uh, it allows you to to abandon that old model of copy between and have the movement be um, transparent to the access, um, and that that. Uh, that means, though, that we also have to take on the second challenge, not just the file system, but all of the sophistication around automated data movement uh, uh, at these three different scales between whole sites, between systems, and and between servers, uh, and move the data in all of that. So it, it's the twinfold problem, file system and the data orchestration that, that it then enables to put behind the file system. And as we have more and more technology partners wanting to integrate with Hammerspace, this could be application vendors, cloud services, you know, whichever layer it is at. Um, I think it's worth mentioning that because it's a file system, it's easier. You know, you're using some industry standard technology. It largely just works when you want to use the Hammerspace technology. Um, but as you're starting to look forward and, are thinking about what happens with Hammerspace in the future. Um, maybe I'll ask you, David, where do you see Hammerspace going over the next couple of years? Well, you know, we, you're right. We have taken on a lot of this burden, and this is one of the reasons why engineering this has taken so long and such a talented team uh, to do is, is that file system being the gold standard also means that applications are already coded to, to do that. Um, and where I see this going is actually extremely important because with the um, growing importance of AI and more advanced analytic workloads, what we're finding is that you now uh, need the uh, agility uh, to move quickly and not have to worry about how this app or that app. You need a common uh, simplified uh, uh, data, data plane, data interface, and that's what what file systems have always been. You know, object stores, uh, you can get around with a you know browser centric view and with REST interfaces, you know, coded in applications. But it's not as quick, it's not as agile, and it's not as powerful. You can't do random reads and writes. You don't have the same kind of bandwidth uh, or low latency expectations. I mean, heck, you can't even 
point your system to it and say load your programs from it. It can't even be the thing from which the OS loads the programs. Think of how fundamental that is. It can't even hold your software packages in a way that you can run them from them. It's it's uh, uh, really pathetic, and yet the industry has been sold on this notion of object storage. So what I'm seeing is that AI and the just the the fact that you need to innovate so quickly there with such a diverse set of applications and and uh, you know researchers need to have they really need to have that fundamental um, low level and standardized traditional file system not not uh, what had been sold with the way to go to cloud through object storage. And I'm glad you did bring up AI. I think it's difficult not to at least have a conversation about that with all the news and excitement around it. Um, Frank, on your side, are you excited about investing in AI? Do you see it as kind of a, a peripheral use case for something like camera space? I mean, how are you looking at it from your perspective in the world? So I look at it two ways. As a, as a skeptical technology investor in Wall Street that is used to big hype words being thrown out, <laughs> and as a father of an MIT AI major, who's actually really working with this stuff. And so I get it from two ways. Um, Number one, Wall Street seems to be assigning AI victory to like a handful of companies already. They've declared the winner, Um, which is, if you look at the stocks, some of the mega caps this year, when we look at our companies, 80% of our companies in the small mega cap space are all working on this stuff. And I think, truthfully, we're trying to figure it out. Some companies will use this to reduce uh, cost, some people will use this for innovation ways to touch customers better. And so I think it's exciting. Um, but like many things we've seen over time, there are hype cycles, right? And, and so people get all excited about how it's used. And, um, you know, it is true networks are getting smarter. They'll get smarter. They have to get smarter. Because at the end of the day, the end user doesn't really care. They just want it to work. They want to be able to log in and, and, and get that service that they want or that data. And so the fact that uh, networks will be smarter, we will likely end up throwing more compute power to solve more issues. So the kind of whole universe grows as we can do more stuff smartly. So Frank, I know you have a kind of interesting blend in public and private under a single roof. Can you talk a little bit more about the mix and the type of companies you invest in at which stage? Sure. So when we we had clients want us to get back into the venture market. Our council wanted us to keep things very separately. And we chose on purpose to keep things together because there were real research synergies. Um, I was always looking at the small mid-cap companies that were going to really chip away at the mega caps and take take share. But I also kept my eye onto the privates where innovation was happening to see who would put my companies at risk. <laughs> and so there was a serious... Um, advantage to be able to have that perspective and so um i tracked the private markets and um when we saw hammerspace and what they were doing we saw that they were going to be you know likely disrupting uh many different types of businesses in the public markets and so we wanted to be uh, to use my analogy part of the windshield (laughs) there you go and david i think that complemented what you were looking for in investors when you decided to take an institutional round. Maybe you can talk just a little bit about the profile you were looking for and how that affects and supports That's your goals right. for the company. Well, and this this was learned through experience with Fusion.io. Um, 
we went more the traditional VC route where they're very single purposed in the private markets. What that means, unfortunately, is they have to rotate out as soon as the company goes public or soon thereafter uh, to return uh, the, the you know, capital to their investors. So we here were looking for investors that would be long-term shareholders even once we're public. And that's because I view the, um, the opportunity to become a public company as really just getting to the starting gate of driving the disruption, uh, especially with the kind of business that we are in, um, selling to some of the world's largest companies. Uh, they benefit from knowing that we have strong financial performance and that we're here to stay. And, and that platform of being a public company will be an important uh, feather in our cap. Uh, and uh, so we view that as really just getting to the starting gate. And the last thing you want to do is have to worry about investor turnover at that point because it can distract from from uh, growing the business. So we've looked specifically for the class of investors who have mandate with their investors to hold over the long term, even once public. So as we start to tie things up, I would like to ask each of you a question about the concept of taking risk in uncertain times. Um, you both have made careers of being able to ride through these market cycles and do it successfully. Um, I think it's very intimidating for some. Others really know how to be successful. Um, what would you share with our audience on in uncertain times? Which risks do you take? How do you have the confidence to do it? And you know, where do you make those decisions? I think whenever there is um, headline risk out there, uh, I've seen two behaviors over my career. I've seen the entrepreneur and the watchpreneur. And the entrepreneur is someone that um, is passionate, wants to find like-minded people and change the world and come hell or high water. They know it's not a straight line, but they're going to try to make it work out. And if they fail, they will pivot, scrappy, dust themselves off, and get back and do it. The entrepreneur likes to talk about it because it sounds really fun and sexy, but then they start looking over their shoulder, they want that paycheck, etc. And um, and those people tend to have decent careers, but not the explosive. And from an investment standpoint, um, when markets are kind of volatile, it's it's the best time to sit back and just be unemotional and look at data. And so I look at investments like some that we've made recently where it's very asymmetric. We don't have a crystal ball. No one does. But if you look at the potential upside versus the downside and put a probability around it, it's pretty easy conversation. And so uh, for me, it's, it's doing very deep analysis of the risks that we're comfortable taking of our own capital and our clients' capital. From my point of view, you know, echo Frank, um, it's just like with any other uh, challenge. Uh, you can face a challenge, and there's really only two options. One option is to think of it as an opportunity uh, and look at uh, the, um, you know, if nothing else, the chance to grow from it. But often there are other lots of ancillary benefits of having, having a challenge. Uh, and, it's, and especially in the economic environment, it causes businesses to behave differently, and that's good for an upstart, right? Um, and we saw this at uh, Fusion IO. Um, it was right through the 2008 and 2010 uh, uh, timeframe, and the economies were not good during that timeframe. 
and uh, and yet here we were introducing a new technology, and it it caused people to take a step back and look at doing it differently than just aggregating hundreds and hundreds of disk drives to try to get performance. And I'd say the same thing is happening now, and that's driving you know the trend for much more agility, uh, much more ability to rationalize. Uh, where the data is stored and and how it's uh, how it's retained, and these are all you know very good things. And so it's really there's only two ways to look at it: a challenge is either an opportunity or it's an excuse uh, for not trying. And you know for for go getters and the kind of people that that uh, that we have on the team here, um, you know it's uh, it's it's definitely looking for folks who view these as awesome opportunities and. Um, that's why it's a lot of fun working with this team. I'd love to add to David's point. Um, innovation is constant. Change is constant. Stepping back, do you want to be the bug or you want to be the windshield? And so <laughs> there you go. truck's coming, the windshield's coming, and I'd rather try to be that windshield. It's going to be a collision. That's right. <laughs> I want to be the windshield. That's my new motto. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> be the windshield. <laughs> Well, thank you both for taking time out of busy schedules. Um, it's been a very interesting conversation, and I really appreciate you taking some time to share your insights. Thank you, Molly. Quite enjoyable, always. Thanks for listening to Data Unchained, powered by Hammerspace. To learn more, visit hammerspace.com. If you have a guest you would like to hear on the show, email me at molly at hammerspace.com. Mm-hmm.